Now we have here the ceremonial cleansing of leprosy. And again, I must insist that we are not being given a cure for leprosy. This is the ceremonial cleansing after a leper is cleansed. In the last chapter, we saw the details concerning leprosy, of how they came to the decision concerning whether a person had leprosy. And it was the diagnosis of all kinds of leprosy. Now, this is the cleansing of it, and we're going to see that it apparently was cured, as we suggested before. Evidently, were those that were cured by the treatment of that day, whatever it was. And there were those that were healed supernaturally, as we've suggested. And today, there is a cure for it. And it's not presented in Scripture as an incurable disease. But since it's the worst disease of that day, it is used to set forth sin. And in it are tremendous spiritual lessons for us. And this chapter now brings in a ray of light and hope into the darkness of the leper's plight. And we'll see that here. Now, it represents sin, as we've said. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, it moved in a twofold direction. You see, it affected both God and man. Now, it moved upward toward God, and man was guilty before a holy God. And that guilt had to be removed if man is to be accepted. But it moved downward toward man, and man became polluted and contaminated with sin. Now, leprosy reveals sin and its pollution and contamination. In my book, I have a little chart that illustrates that. Upward guilt, downward pollution. Now, we come to a chapter that will bring before us, I suppose, one of the most unique offerings that you'll find in the Bible, one of the most unique you've ever heard of, for the cleansing of leprosy. And I want to begin reading now at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priests, and the priests shall go out of the camp, and the priests shall look and behold if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper. Now, you see, he's not going out to heal him. He's going to go out and see if he is healed. That's important, and that makes the significant statement here, the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now, this is a ritual which was to be followed in detail. And there was, therefore, this cleansing. And it's a ceremonial cleansing, and it always followed the cure of leprosy. Now, he'd been pronounced a leper by the priest. Now, the priest must declare him cleansed. And there was two steps in the process. The priest must first go under the leper and meet him where he is. The leper, of course, would not dare come into the society among people because he was forbidden to do that. He was shut out. And therefore, the priest had to go out to him wherever he was. And you remember when our Lord was here in Luke seventeen twelve, it says, As he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, 
which stood afar off. Why did they stand afar off? Well, they're lepers. And then the priest went unto them, and our Lord went unto these lepers, by the way. Now, we have here, therefore, a parallel to the person and work of our great high priest and our great physician. He came forth from heaven's glory to this sin-cursed earth. Friends, we couldn't make it up there. (laughs) We'd done well to make it to the moon, and we didn't get rid of sin when we went to the moon. But the fact of the matter is, he came out of heaven's glory to this earth. And I think that lovely hymn has it accurately, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Now, that's his story. And you find that given with a great deal of emphasis as it describes his long pilgrimage when he left heaven's glory to this earth. And it's in the second chapter of Hebrews. I'm not going to read all of that section, but let me just lift out one or two things. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should it taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then we're told that he came down to this earth, and he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So that he came out of heaven's glory down to this earth. The priest had to go out to the leper. Christ came down where we were in a world of woe. And Paul in Galatians says, For when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And this is so important that even today, he says, even in a Laodicean day, when he's apparently no longer in the organized church, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, the Lord Jesus came down to this earth for that purpose, and he came down to touch the leper, that he might be made whole, to touch the sinner. Now, notice what the priest did when he came down out to the leper. Then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, two birds, alive and clean, and cedarwood, and scarlet, and hyssop, And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them in the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field." Now, didn't I tell you we were going to see an unusual ceremony? This is it. I don't think there's anything anywhere as unusual as this is. This is the cleansing of the lepers. All sacrifices were made on that altar 
that was in the tabernacle and later in the temple. No other place, God says. This is the exception. Why? Well, the altar, you see, is the cross of Christ. And it was reared right down here on this earth. And that altar speaks of that. But you see, he came down here where the leper is. And the leper didn't have access to the tabernacle. He was shut out. Friends, we were shut out from God. We were strangers. We were afar off. We were without hope and without God in the world. And he came out to where we were to meet our need. Now, there are two live, clean birds, a dove, I suppose. Now, one represents the death of Christ, and the second bird represents the resurrection of Christ. These are the two great facets of the gospel, and both are essential. Paul said to the Corinthians, this is the gospel. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also receive, how that Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, he was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Two birds, one representing the death, one the resurrection. Now, cedar wood, that's a symbol, I think, of the perfect humanity of Christ. The wood was incorruptible. It served a practical purpose as the handle of a brush to which the hyssop was tied with a scarlet string, and scarlet was evidently scarlet wool. Now, we're told the third thing here is scarlet is a sign of faith in the blood. And this reminds us that Rahab, you know, was instructed to put out a scarlet cord as an evidence of her faith. And then hyssop was a plant that grew upon rocks and damp places. And hyssop represents faith of the individual. It's the appropriation and the application of the redemption in Christ. Now, you can stand at the sidelines and nod your head and say you believe Jesus died and he rose again. That doesn't mean you're saved. Have you appropriated for yourself? Have you really trusted him? This is a tremendous ceremony, friends. And then the earthen vessel speaks of the humanity of Christ. He took part of our flesh, our humanity. And we're told we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and the earthen vessel is this body that we have. Now, the emphasis here, of course, is upon the weakness and infirmity of humanity. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tested like as we are, yet he was without sin. Now, running water is living water, water that was taken out of a branch that was running. And maybe some of you people in some sections of the country don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about branch water. Where I come from, a branch is a little creek, a little rivulet, maybe some of you call it, that runs along. It's running water. And this water that was taken... From a running stream or fountain, it speaks of both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the ritual is both unusual and beautiful. One of the birds is slain over the earthen vessel in which there's living water. This represents the death of Christ who offered himself by the eternal Spirit. The writer to the Hebrews in 9.14 says, "...how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God?" Now, two birds are essential, as you can see, because one of them is kill, and then the live bird is dipped in the blood of the slain bird to identify him with the bird that was slain. 
that we have a carrying through of the same great truth. And the live bird is given its freedom by permitting it to fly away. And Christ was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification. Friends, to give us the liberty to stand steadfast in Christ. And we're told in Galatians 5, 1, "...stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, with a law, or rituals, or regulations. Now Christ took our place, died, paid the penalty. He was raised for us. And if he died for us down here, and we died in him, then we're in him up yonder, because he's been raised from the dead and at God's right hand." And we're joined today to the living Christ. And the believers as free as the birds of heaven in being delivered from religion, ritual, and law. He is now, though, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's subject to him. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments today. Now, hyssop here denotes the faith of the sinners in the application of the blood of Christ. You remember that David cried out, "'Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow.'" It's the application of the death of Christ, the blood of Christ to our sins. And again, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. The application of the blood of Christ to our lives. Now, the blood and the water meet in this ceremony. You notice that, the living water and the blood. John was careful to note, you remember when Christ died, that when the spear was put in his side, there came out both blood and water, not just one, but both. And he tells us that in his gospel. He tells us that in his first epistle. One school of the Gnostics of John's day taught that Jesus was not God but that God came upon him at baptism, that's water, but departed at the cross, blood. John insists that he was God from the very beginning when he was made flesh, and he was God on the cross when he shed his precious blood. This is the testimony of Scripture. And John says, "...and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood." (laughs) These three agree in one. What a marvelous thing this is. Now, the ceremony and offering concerning the leper all bore this out. And it illustrates, you see, this great truth. Now, we are told in verses 8 and 9, "...and he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, wash himself in water, that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of the tent seven days. But it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. Even all his hair he shall shave off, and he shall wash his clothes. Also, he shall wash his flesh in water, and he shall be clean. And you have to admit, this is unusual also. Now, this is part of the sacrificial ceremony and has to do with the acceptance of the leper back in among others. He's returning back to society. And all of this had to do with the fact that the old life has ended for him. He's no longer a leper, but a new life opens for him. 
and his clothes represent the habits of life. And shaving all the hair of his body emphasizes the radical and revolutionary change that's going to take place in the life of the believer when he comes to Christ. You see, the putting away of the flesh is essential to a consistent walk before the world. And the Lord Jesus said, "...by their fruits ye shall know them." And that's still the test tube for his own today. And seven days is a complete cycle of inspection and testing. He's to be tested, you see, before he returns to society. I think sometimes we let some folk give a testimony a little too soon. That was true of some of these Hollywood so-called converts. They testified a little too soon. They're to be put up after they're supposed to be cleansed of leprosy. And he's to wash him thoroughly. And the child of God must continually do this. Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. And sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And friends, you can never be cleansed or sanctified, set apart for God's use until you come to the word of God. How important that is. Now, we have the ceremonial cleansing of the leper within the camp. And on the eighth day, she'll take two he lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb the first year without blemish, three-tenth deals of fine flour, meal offered, mingled with oil, and one of oil. Now, you see, the ceremonial cleansing of the lepers not concluded with the offering of the two birds without the camp. He's now made fit to enter the congregation of the Lord again. But when he does, he must take his place with the other Israelites. And when he does, he must bring whatever other Israelite had to the tabernacle. Two he lambs, one ewe lamb, fine flour, oil, and a log of oil. All of that had to be brought. And these are the requirements for all sacrifices which an Israelite would make in his entire lifetime. And this indicates the full acceptance of the cleansed leper. Now you have a long ritual here. And from verses 11 through 20, it's actually 10 verses, and it's just one sentence in the authorized version. You see here, this encompasses all the offerings. And this means the cleansed leper now stands before the door of the tabernacle as any other Israelite. And all of these offerings speak of Christ and that he's made acceptable to God now, not just because he's a cleansed leper. You see, there's a danger today of Christians feeling super-duper. And today we have quite a few groups. They withdraw from the others and... They're going to live differently and act differently, and they're so much better than the others. My friend, may I say to you <laughs> that you have to come just like all the rest of us come. And all these offerings had to be made. You remember that Peter said to the Lord Jesus, You'll not wash me. Our Lord says, You'll not have any fellowship with me unless I wash you. And my friend, he's saying that to you and to me today. This idea today that you can withdraw from others and you can set up your own little group and you don't have to get into a church and you don't have to work today. You don't have to be concerned. May I say to you, you missed the whole point. The leper was brought back, yes, cleansed, but he's brought back into the congregation. <laughs> and he stands as a sinner 
Therefore, God, that needs constant cleansing. And by the way, here at the end, we have the ceremonial cleansing of a house wherein has been leprosy. And I must confess that this is an unusual place to discover leprosy. But as you know, they have to fumigate places today where contagious diseases have been. And that's exactly what you have here. The ceremony is very much the same. You and I live in an old house down here. This body of ours, it's filled with leprosy. We still have this old nature and the old body. I'm going to trade mine in one day on a new one. The house here had to be emptied of its furniture and occupants, and then the priest comes at the end of seven days and looks it over again. It had to be inspected, and we get rid of these old bodies of ours. And then there's another aspect of it here. It's quite an extended suggestion. The priest comes at the end of seven days. He discovers a trace of leprosy. Then he removes the plaster from the infected part. In fact, he just about has to build a new house. And the third and final stage is when the priest comes and finds remnants of the infection. And then the house is to be demolished and removed out of the city. And a new one has to be brought in. And friends, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he says that he's going to do. What a tremendous thing this is. And then you have here concluding this, the last few verses, a ceremonial law for cleansing of leprosy and issues of blood. This is an emphatic enforcement of the law concerning the cleansing of the leprosy. What a great spiritual lesson is here. To teach, we're told, is the important thing here that you and I have spiritual leprosy today. And friends, if you and I went to heaven without Jesus Christ, without trusting him, we'd have to run all over the place crying out, unclean, unclean. But in Christ, we're accepted in the Beloved. Where are you today? Are you a leper that has not been cleansed or a leper that has been cleansed? Now, we have had two chapters on this matter of leprosy. And that's been bad enough, but it's going to get worse in this chapter. The subject here happens to be running issues. Now, that's not very nice, is it? And these running issues represent to us the repulsive pollution of secret sin. Now, we are hearing about a great deal of the pollution of our ecology, but there is a pollution of our souls also and our minds and our entire lives, in fact, of our physical bodies. These running sores, they actually are highly contagious and infectious, and they reveal to us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You see, human nature is an overflowing cesspool and sewer of uncleanness. Not only is human nature defiled, but defiling. And not only do we get defiled, but we defile others. Not only is it corrupt, but it's corrupting. And this chapter here will hold up the mirror of nature and after one look, no flesh can glory in his sight. 
Now, may I just say this word concerning this? Leprosy that we've looked at is the worst disease that is imaginable. And you'd think these running issues would be put before it. But actually, what we have here are those things that are contagious. And leprosy actually is not contagious. I have put in my book, the second volume on the book of Leviticus, a discussion, question and answer period with Dr. Liker, who's an authority on leprosy. He was asked the question, what causes leprosy? And here's his answer, and I'm quoting him. Leprosy is caused by tiny germs called leprosy bacilli, which can be seen only through a microscope. The bacilli were discovered in 1873 by the Norwegian doctor Hansen. That's why leprosy is sometimes called Hansen's disease. Now, the second question that was asked this good doctor was, how does a person get leprosy? And here's what he said, a quoting again. The bacilli are present in large numbers in the skin of certain types of leprosy patients. They pass from these patients to the skin of healthy people, mainly by bodily contact. They then enter the skin through tiny wounds and scratches. Only infectious patients, those who have many bacilli in their skin, are able to spread the disease. And then he goes on to say this, that the only way you can keep from getting leprosy would be, therefore, frequent bathing, washing of clothes, and keeping a clean house. And that's his literal words. That'll help to prevent the disease, because many bacilli can be washed away with water and soap before they enter the skin. And he says the most important thing is to avoid bodily contact with infectious cases of leprosy. Leprosy, you see, was a disease that could not be kept a secret for long because it worked slowly, but it would finally break out. But you see, running issues could be kept secret for a long time. And these latter represent the thought life of man as well as the overt act of sin. You see, at the very beginning, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, you see, this has to do, therefore, with that part of human nature that's defiled, and that part of human nature that's filthy, and that part of human nature that affects others. This is something that a great many have experienced. And they want to be cleansed. They want to be washed. They want to get it out of their system. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Job asked that question. Psalm 19:12 says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. And then in Romans 7:18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That was Paul. He mentions the fact of how he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious 
But he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And then he went on to say, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, we have here, therefore, the nature of man that is hidden. No one else may know about it. And this secret sin, it can be passed on to others. This is what we know that's down deep in our hearts. It was Gertie, the German, who said, I see no fault committed, which I too might not have committed. And there are those that believe that Gertie was the greatest thinker that's ever been on this earth, even greater than Kant. And then Dr. Samuel Johnson commented like this. He says, "...every man knows that of himself." which he dares not tell to his dearest friend. And the Count de Maestri said, I do not know what the heart of a villain may be. I only know that of a virtuous man. And it's frightful. And even Shakespeare is written, Go to your own bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it doth know. And then Seneca, that Roman, a pagan Roman, but he astutely observes, Why is there no man who confesses his vices? Then he answers it, It's because he has not yet laid them aside. It is a waking man only who can tell his dreams. And so the fellow that's still in sin that won't confess it is because that he's like the man that's still dreaming. And you ought to wake up before you can tell about your dream. Now, the curse of sin has affected man's power actually in the propagation of the race. If you look at these awful running issues, you'll find that they're connective with the generative organs of the race. I think for the most part they're social diseases. They're deadly virulent and prevalent, more so than leprosy. Now, we find here, he makes that very clear, that this curse of sin has got down, moved right into the human family. And this is what David meant when he cried out, "'Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow.'" Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, there is filthiness and defilement that's connected with sexual sins that is appalling. Now, today, in the new morality, it's quite interesting. They are turning up with the same old diseases with the new morality. And today... The social diseases, venereal diseases, are increasing at an alarming rate. And they tell me that in several places in this country and abroad where our soldiers are, that it's an epidemic stage today. That's the thing that he's talking about here. And that's the way sin is. Robs a person of the joy of their salvation. Now, actually... You're rather amazed that God talks about such a repulsive subject here. And he gives to man, I think here, a 
comprehensive view of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And this is quite a remarkable view. We need to, I think, to remember what Paul said. He says, "...whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope." Now, notice the first verses. "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in his issue, whether his flesh run with his issue, or his flesh be stopped from his issue. It's his uncleanness." Now, you'll recall that back in 13, he said that he spoke unto Moses and Aaron. And now he's speaking to Moses and Aaron again. Chapter 14, the law of the leopard was only Moses. You see, the high priest Aaron is a prophetic picture of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and he alone can give comfort and understanding to the afflicted as well as extend mercy and grace. And so we find the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 5, 1 and 2, "...for every high priest taken from among man is ordained from man in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity." And today we have a great high priest... And he can't be touched with our sins, but he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, because he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Now, friends, this is vivid language, is it not? And this reveals how sickening, how disgusting, how abhorrent, how offensive, how impure, how repugnant, how utterly corrupt and corrupted is human nature today. The pus of sin is flowing from the hearts of men and women. You can see it around you today. And the defilement is here. You can't rub shoulders with anyone without somehow or another it affecting your life. Because human nature is not only corrupt, it's corrupting and You and I, if we meet, we are going to influence one another. I'll live my life in you, and you'll live your life in me. It can't be otherwise. You're a preacher, whether you know it or not, and you're preaching by your life. There was a drunkard. His mother was a very godly woman, and she lived down from the church when I was pastor in Pasadena, and... This son of hers, you could always tell when he was on a what they call a toot. He'd come down the street using both sides of the street to hold himself up. And his mother, so distressed and ashamed, and she would ask me to talk with him. And one day I saw him coming down the street before he could get home. I turned him into my study there and sat him down and began to talk with him. I told him how low down he was. I told him what a big sinner he was, what a disgrace he was, and how cheap he was. And I called him everything that you possibly could call a man like that. 
And he just hung his head and took it off. And I said, don't you know that you are preaching by your life? He says, you calling me a preacher? And I said, yes. And he got up the best he could as a drunk, and he wanted to fight me. You could call him anything else in the world but a preacher. Now, I don't care who you are listening to me. You're a preacher. You're preaching by your life some message. You are influencing some. It has to be that way. Human nature is corrupting unless it's regenerated human nature. And sometimes then it's not too good. Would you like to listen to what our Lord Jesus said about the human heart and what comes out of man? What's in all of us? Listen to Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. It's amazing today how people are interested in religious ceremonies, and they go through those religious ceremonies, and yet they've got a heart that's as filthy as it possibly could be. In fact, all of us have that kind of a heart, friends, unless it's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then these thoughts come into the heart. James makes it very practical. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Paul could say, I know within my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The sower of sin, it may be visible or it may be invisible. It may be oozing blood and pus, or it may appear on the surface. But it's there. The thought life and the secret sins are in view here. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. This is a passage that should bring down proud man and show how utterly disgusting he is in the light of God's presence. And it gives man another slant on how he appears to a righteous God. Listen again to David, Psalm 51, 4, "...against thee the only have I sinned and done this evil." God has emphasized this in his word again and again that the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Listen to him in Ezekiel as he spoke of these people. He says, When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted, and he says, Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. And then in Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. You ought to read, by the way, all of the 59th chapter of Isaiah. Now, we are told here in verse 4 and 7, and I'm not going now into too much detail, but it says, "...every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue is unclean." Why, everything he sets on, everything he touches. You see, God's concern with the daily life of his people. His law reaches into the minute areas of his life. 
He watched over them when they were asleep. And the man with an unclean issue, he contaminated the bed upon which he slept. And even his dreams were impure. Many a person spends a sleepless night not counting sheep, but recounting and recalling his sins with lustful pleasure. God's interested in what we think when we lie upon our pillows. And today he wants to control our thought life. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are of good report, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. You see, God is interested in you. He's interested in you when you lie down, when you walk, and and he's interested in what you touch. And it's impossible today for a believer to rub shoulders with sinners in business or the social way, uh, walk down our streets and look at these four-letter words that are just glaring at us today in every direction, and you get soiled. The important thing is that we should confess our sins and... We all have this leprosy of sin. You see, these running sowers, these hidden sins. Now he talks here in verses 8 through 12. He says, And if he that hath the issue spit upon him that's clean. Believe me, this thing gets down where you feel almost disgusted. But it reveals the nastiness of sin by contact. And... This refers to that which is accidental. A believer today often finds himself in a public place in a street when some vile and dirty-minded person opens his mouth and he hears these things. And we find here, as you read on, that even in public transportation there's danger of contamination. And verses 10 and 11 remind us that after being in the company of some folk, a believer feels dirty all over. He's dirty and he needs to wash himself. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? The psalmist says, but taking heed thereto according to thy word. It's the reason we need to stay in the word of God, because of the fact that we get dirty in this life. And the Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter, if I wash Thee not thou hast no part with me. That is, you haven't any fellowship with me. And now he says to them, Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What a picture that we have here of the contamination of secret sin. And you run on through this section, and I'm not going to read now, but just lift out some of the high points here. The water and the blood both are used here for cleansing as you read on. And it means that the Holy Spirit must apply the sacrifice of Christ to these secret sins that are in our lives today. My, what a picture this is of secret sin in the lives of people today and even in the lives of believers this is a sordid chapter, but who's it describing? Who's it a picture of? 
picture of you and a picture of me, my friend. That's the reason we need to be cleansed, to come into his presence. I'm not turning to verse 16. And if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, and he shall wash all his flesh in water, and be unclean until the evening, and every garment, every skin, whereon is the seed of copulation, shall be washed with water, and be unclean until the evening. The woman also with whom man shall lie with seed of copulation, they shall both bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. Now, it's obvious that what we're talking about here are venereal diseases, and that which is very corrupting and today is like an epidemic as it's spreading about in certain sections. But you see, this is to show that what he's saying here and what he's talking about are these unholy desires and lustful thoughts, and that they are sinful. Uh, ye have heard, our Lord said, that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, committeth adultery with her already in his heart. This is something that man is told here and reminded of that actually he's incapable of bringing into the world only a helpless offspring and that he cannot bring into the world a sinless offspring. It's one with a sin nature. And David knew what he was talking about when he said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? Now, I want to conclude this chapter with verses 31 through 33, and here you'll see the repulsiveness and the regulation of running issues. I'm reading now. Thus shall ye separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, that they die not in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law of him that hath an issue, and of him whose seed goeth from him, and is defiled therewith, and of her that is sick of her flowers, and of him that hath an issue, of the man and of the woman, of him that lieth with her that is unclean. Now, there are several things here that we need to close this chapter with. One is that it's abundantly clear that sexual sins are the primary consideration in this chapter of running issues, and that we're talking about venereal diseases primarily. And the running issues seem to be restricted here to social diseases. And death was the penalty for failure to obey the commandments regulating running issues. Now, this is not a trivial matter to God. Secret sins of believers cannot be ignored. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 3:16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. 
He's talking now to believers and reminding them that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians over in the 11th chapter, and speaking of their sins, he says, "...for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep." That is, many are dead. I believe that today that there is a sin unto death. Listen to John, 1 John 5, 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, all he's saying here, that there is a sin that you can commit, that God will take you home if you're a child of his. If a man commits that, there's no use praying for him because God's going to take him home. But somebody says, how do I know what it is? You don't know what it is. But if you pray for the man and he goes home, then you can pretty much understand what it was. We need to recognize today, friends, that God's still dealing with his children, and I believe he judges us today. Now, that doesn't mean everybody dies, dies this way. It's not true. But very candidly, there's a sin under death. God calls his children home when they continue to be disobedient. This is the sins, by the way. And it's generally in this area here. It reveals that sins abhorrent. God is holy. And only the water and the blood can act as a cathartic. God says... In Isaiah 59, 2, "...but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he'll not hear." And therefore, a child of God needs to recognize that. He needs to confess his sins. But there are certain sins that he keeps in that one day God will strike him down. Now, don't blame God for it. Blame the individual. It's the same thing that you have in the matter. And I can use a very ridiculous illustration. Here's a mother. She has a precious little boy named Willie. And all my little boys that I talk about are named Willie. And so Willie says he wants to go out in the yard and play. Backyard. So his mama says, go ahead out there and play. And remember, though, that little old brat next door... Now, I don't want you playing with him, and I don't want you to hurt him. And so, little Willie says, No, Mom, I won't hurt him, and I won't play with him. And so, she's busy washing the dishes. Willie's been out playing for about 30 minutes. And she hears that little brat next door yelling at the top of his voice. And she goes to the door, and she looks out, and there she sees her precious little angel, Willie on top of the brat next door, just beating the stuffing out of him. She says, Willie, I told you not to do that. He said, yes, Mama. And she said, now the next time you do that, I'm going to bring you in the house. He says, yes, Mama. I won't do it anymore. And so she goes back in to wash dishes. Thirty minutes, she hears that little brat next door. And she goes to the door, and the same sight greets her. There's her precious little Willie, just beating the stuffing out of the boy next door. She said, Willie, didn't I tell you if you did that again, you'd have to come in? Well, Mama, I don't want to come in. <laughs> and so she goes out, gets him by the ear, and leads him in. He doesn't want to come in. 
And God's a good disciplinarian, by the way. Sometimes a child of his keeps on sinning, and he commits a sin unto death, and the father just takes him on home, doesn't leave him down here. This is what we're talking about here, and here it has to do with sexual sins. And we're living in a day where they're mad in the area of sex. And it's quite interesting that it's the day that venereal disease is becoming epidemic. What a lesson we have in this chapter. And I'm very glad to close the page on this chapter here, because it's an ugly one, is it not? But it just happens to be talking about the human family, which you and I are part. Now, it's like going out of darkness into light, or coming out of a tunnel into the clear noonday sun. When we come from chapter 15 to 16, Chapter 16 is the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. This is a picture that I would say one of the greatest that we have. Here are great spiritual lessons for us. And here we have one of the greatest. Now, the subjects treated so far in Leviticus, they've been offerings, priests, and sin. And none of these has dealt finally and completely with the sin question. We now come to that which more completely than any other deals with the subject of sin. It points more specifically and adequately to the work of Christ in redemption than anything we've seen so far. It's a shadow of his redemptive work. We are told, "...let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ." You see, a shadow is a picture. And although a picture is a poor substitute for the real thing or the real person, it points to the reality. Years ago... Hengstenberg commented, and I'm quoting, "...the elucidation of the doctrine of types, now entirely neglected, is an important problem for future theologians." And the picture or the type in this great day of atonement, I think, merits our careful study. And Dr. Kellogg states the significance of this great day of atonement like this. He says, "...it was perhaps the most important and characteristic in the whole Mosaic legislation. And the rabbis of that day and a later day, they designated the Day of Atonement with a simple word, Yomah, the day. And that's what it means. It was on this day that sin was dealt with in a more adequate and satisfactory way than in any other ceremony of the Mosaic system. And we're told here, when you get over to verse 16, it says, "...all their sins." You'll make an atonement for all their sins because of their transgression in all their sins. What a picture! that we have here. And in verse 22, he says, "...all their iniquities, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities." 
all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins. That's verse 21. You see, this was the best that the law had to offer until Christ came. And you have some instructions and restrictions of this day that grew out of the historical incident of the rebellion and disobedience of Nadab and Abihu. We saw that way back in chapter 10. Now, the Day of Atonement was observed in the seventh month and on the tenth day. And I think the numbers here are significant. They are, I think, in most of Scripture. The seventh is the sabbatic month and denotes rest and cessation from works. And surely it's not amiss that this month was chosen to set forth the rest of redemption that's in Christ. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says in 4.10. Now, 10's another prominent number in Scripture, and it seems to convey the idea of that which expresses God's complete will and way. For instance, you have Ten Commandments. God could have given another, but he didn't. He could have just given nine. God requested the tenth, the tithe. And the remnant of Israel is defined as a tenth. That's in Isaiah 6.13. Ten expresses God's mind and purpose. The tenth day expresses the truth that Christ came to do the will of God, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. He came in the fullness of time at the appointed hour. Christ came. Now, the word here for atonement is called the great day of atonement. The Hebrew word is kafar, which means actually to cover. God in the Old Testament did not take away sins. He covered them until Christ came and removed them. And that's exactly what Paul means in Acts 17.30 when he says, "...and the times of this ignorance God winked at." That is, he overlooked it. "...but now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent." And then again in Romans 3.25, "...whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that is, a mercy seat, through faith in his blood." to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, the great day of atonement pointed to Christ, but it did not take away sin. It was an atonement. It covered it until Christ came, you see. Then the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 9:15 says, "...and for this cause he's the mediator of the New Testament." that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. What's that? Old Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's a tremendous statement, friends. And the Holy Spirit, again, I'm reading, by the way, in Hebrews 9, 8, and 9. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way unto the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So that it's quite clear that the 
Old Testament sacrifices did not really remove sins. That's, I think, something that we need to call your attention to and emphasize here, that this great day of atonement pointed to Christ. Now, it reveals Christ as our great high priest going into the holy of holiest for us. Now, I'm going to get into the text we read beginning with verse 1 and 2. And you have the preparation first here of the priest, and that's in the first six verses. And then you have the preparation of the place, verses 7 through 19, and then the preparation of the people, verses 20 to 34. Now, will you notice, "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Now, you see the instructions and ordinances and ritual of the great day of atonement were made essential after the incident of the death of Nadab and Abihu. Now, these men, these two sons of Aaron, you'll recall, intruded into the holy place, and they were slain by the direct judgment of God. Now, the great day of atonement offered an explanation for the sudden death of these two young men. The utter holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of man are made clear in this service. There is a great gulf between God and man, but it's not fixed. And thank God for that. It's been bridged today. God offers encouragement to man to come to him. But my friend, you have to come God's way. And when you come God's way, you can come with boldness. For he says, "...for by him we have access through one Spirit to the Father." The invitation is to come. And the writer to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way." which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, it means we're going to come God's way, and if we do, then we can... Come, and come with great assurance. Now, will you notice here that all of this was done because these two boys had intruded into the Holy of Holies. Now, God says, you can't always come into my place. And today, we can come anytime, any place. But how was that made possible? Provided we come through Christ. Now, I actually believe it's sinful for some people to pray. I think the unbeliever that prays. I think that a minister that rejects Christ and gets up publicly and prays to God and does not 
come through Christ. He's coming up some other way, and God will not accept it. That was the sin of Nadab and Abihu. Now, I'm reading verses 3 and 4. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. He shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, so put them on. And I think the unique and significant feature right here that took place on the great day of atonement was that the high priest alone performed the ritual. He had no assistance whatsoever. All was his work, from the menial tasks to the high priestly offices. All the other priests retired from the tabernacle, and he alone entered for the work of atonement was his, by the way. And we have here in verse 17, let me read that. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he, that is, the high priest, goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. That's very important, you see, here. Christ was alone, friends, with the sins of the world. The 22nd Psalm opens with his plaintive and desperate cry of our Lord on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? Christ was forsaken of God and man when he was made sin for us. Nevertheless, he and the Father were in fellowship regarding the plan of salvation so that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he could say, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. I'm not alone because the Father's with me. And I say this is a great mystery. But here the high priest laid aside his garments of glory and beauty. He washed himself, put on the linen garments only. He must be pure. And there's so much here that we'd like to go into detail, and we'll go into as much as we possibly can. The great high priest acted alone on the great day of atonement. All the other priests withdrew. And then we noted that he not only acted alone, but he took off his garments of glory and beauty and dressed like any other priest on that day. And we find out what the high priest did then and who he was is a picture of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And our great high priest, we are told that he was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwell among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath brought Him out in the open where man can see Him, so that our Lord laid aside not His deity, but His glory. 
and came down to this earth and became a man. And that's what Philippians 2 tells us, that though he existed in the form of God, that he came down and he made himself of no reputation. That's the story. And the Lord Jesus came from heaven's glory to this earth. And that is mirrored in this year. Now, when we come to verse 5, we read, "...and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house." Now, may I say that that finds no parallel or any correspondence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually had to make no offering for himself. When he was born, you remember, eight days circumcised, then 33 days later, or 40 days after he was born, while he was taken into the temple. And an offering of turtle doves were made. But you recall that offering was made for his mother to remind her she's a sinner, you see. Now, what we have here is the fact that he never made an offering for himself as far as the record is concerned. And when we say that Aaron only entered, or the high priest only entered into the Holy of Holies once a year and only one time, that is not quite accurate. Actually, on the great day of atonement, he went in twice. He went in first for himself, and then he went in for the rest of the nation, Israel. Now, we are told here, beginning at verse 7, we have the preparation of the place. And you'll notice here, after he's prepared, the great high priest, and our Lord left heaven's glory, came down to this earth, became a man, grew to 33 years of age, and then he offered himself upon the cross for the sins of the world. Now we have here the place. And let me read this. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, I'm going to continue to read here because this is very important and there's a great spiritual truth here. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for him. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, bring it within the veil, and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, 
sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, first of all, let's understand as much as we can about the scapegoat, because two goats are presented, and we need to recognize that one goat was offered as a sin offering. Now, the other goat was taken and taken into the wilderness. We'll come to that, that the goat was sent away into the wilderness seems to be the best interpretation and most satisfactory. That is, this would mean that the word applies primarily to the goat and the destination of the goat. This, by the way, is the view of the Septuagint, and it's the view of Martin Luther, and of, I think, the two best expositors of Leviticus, Dr. Kellogg and Dr. Andrew Bonar. And it means an entire and utter removal. Edersheim gives it the meaning, holy to put aside or holy to go away. It's definitely part of the sin offering, but we're going to see that just a little later. But let me mention certain views here. I think that will be interesting in helping us to understand this. It says another view is that It is the name of the place to which the goat was sent. Well, that seems inconsistent with the purpose of the offering. And then some refer the word to a demon in the wilderness or to Satan. And that just doesn't meet the demands of the Day of Atonement, and it sounds like a heathen interpretation. Some state that it means the Jewish people in their state of apostasy, and that's far-fetched. Others feel that it represents the resurrection of Christ. And this creates a problem, though it seems to be most natural. But both goats are a sin offering, and they set forth the different aspects of the death of Christ in relation to sin. Now, when we get to this goat that's taken in the wilderness, a scapegoat, I want us to look at what really took place on that day, and I think that it'll be helpful. But the The thing now that interests us is the fact that after Aaron had gone in and made an offering for himself, then he took one of the goats, he slew that goat, and he took the blood in a basin, and he got a censer, filled it with incense. Then he went inside the Holy of Holies. Now, you'll recall the brazen altar was out there in the outer court. And I am confident on the way in, he went by and washed his hands and his feet. He went into the holy place, and he got the coals from off the altar there, which is the golden altar, altar prayer, and the censer. And he goes in to the Holy of Holies. The ark and the mercy seat were up against the veil, and he came around and then faced east, you see. And he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle it seven times. Now, if he did anything wrong, there was a chain on his foot, and he'd have been pulled out of there dead. As far as the record is concerned, the only two that ever died in there were Nadab and Abihu. And now, he's going to make sure he does everything right. He's going to sprinkle that blood seven times. And if he doesn't know how to count to seven before he gets in there... He's going to learn. And when he goes in, he'll know how. 
and he doesn't count six times, and he doesn't count eight times, and he does everything just like the instructions were given to him. He's gone in now to represent not himself, but he's gone in to represent the people. Now, I want to read this about the goats, because I think this is important. Let me begin reading at verse 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people, bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. And that bullock's blood was for him, you know. And he sprinkle it upon the mercy seat before the mercy seat, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself, for his household, for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that's before the Lord and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock, the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about, and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and hallow it for the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Now, this is a tremendous thing, and great truth is here. You see that when he killed that goat, took that blood in, he's gone in, not only for himself and his family, but he's gone in for the children of Israel because of their transgressions and because of their uncleanness. And he even comes out and anoints that altar with blood because the very place where the sacrifices are made have become polluted because of the sins of the people. And it reminds us that It's not the cross that's the important thing. It's the one who died on the cross. After all, there could have been 300 crosses erected there that day of men that were crucified. But it's the value of the one who died upon that cross for the sins of the world. And to remind us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from our vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of his lamb without spot and blemish. And the Lord Jesus, I believe, took his own blood into heaven. And I take that quite literally, that the blood of Christ will be there. My book on the tabernacle, which we mentioned some time ago, I have taken a position in that that it's offered literally. The only criticism I ever read of the book was made by a certain denominational publication And the reviewer was kind enough to urge all the ministers to get the book. And he called attention to what he believed was the value of it. But then he also said, be aware of the literalness of this writer because he believes that the literal blood of Christ was offered there. And he says, that's a rather crude interpretation. Well, I want to say this. Simon Peter called the blood of Christ precious. And he didn't call it crude. I believe that the blood will be there to remind us throughout the endless ages of eternity, friends, that a tremendous price was paid for our salvation. Now, 
the value of the one who died on the cross, shed his blood, and he presented that blood for your sins and for my sins. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, we come to this other little animal. When he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle, and so on, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man under the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now, on this day, the great high priest function alone. Aaron had sprinkled the blood of the Lord's goat on the mercy seat. Now he places his bloody hands on the head of the live goat and confesses the sins of Israel. It must have been a sordid list of sins, but down the list he went. And the laying on of the hands denotes the fact that this goat is now identified as the sins of Israel. And it's of Christ, it said, "...the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he was made sin for us." And old Ambrose said, "...the thief knew that those wounds in the body of Christ were not the wounds of Christ, but of the thief." Aaron put that goat into the hands of a man who had no personal interest in it, and Israelites were stationed at intervals to see that the job was done." and the live goat finally disappeared into the wilderness, never to be seen or found again. And the news that the goat was gone was relayed from station to station so that it was known a few minutes later in the temple. And just as the news was passed from station to station, so the good news that Christ has taken away our sins has been passed from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to Paul the Apostle, the early church fathers, and finally to your day and to my day, and to me and to you. Christ has put away our sins in a perfect and complete manner. And the scapegoat illustrates that, and there are several scriptures that confirm it. Psalm 103, 12, "...as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us." And then Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. And then Isaiah forty-four twenty-two, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And then Jeremiah fifty twenty In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. And then again, Jeremiah thirty one thirty four, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
Now, what does the great day of atonement mean to the Christian? It's a holy day for us today. When the high priest is there with his bloody hands on the head of the goat, I think of my Lord on the cross. John pointed to him, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Dean Law put it like this, Faith transfers our sins, Christ removes them, God forgets them. What a wonderful picture you have here. Now, very briefly, I want to conclude this chapter, but the other things that are here, Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, put off the linen coals which he put on, and he goes into the holy place and shall leave them there, and he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forward. And the ritual of the great day of atonement's been completed. And without meaning to be irreverent, let me say that all that was left for Aaron to do was to wash up. And this finds no counterpart in Christ. When his work was finished, he sat down at the right hand of God. Aaron did not dare enter into the holy place for another year. And our Lord sat down there. And our Savior has no taint of sin upon him now, though he bore all sin upon the tree. This protects, you see, the person of Christ from any implication with sin, though he was made sin for us. Now, will you notice, "...and he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, bathe his flesh, and he'll come back into the camp." I want to tell you God was impressing on these people, friends, that they were sinners, that they were lost sinners. And all through this book, and I hope now you've noted it, that God is holy and that you and I are sinners and our sins have separated us from God. And the only way is for what Christ did for us. He is the one who died for our sins and he entered into the holy place, offered his blood. But God has removed our sins. They're removed, and that's set forth in this. And that one comes back, he washes himself. And then we have a ceremony that took place, the Day of Atonement, the only day of mourning and fasting which God ever gave to his people. On this day, you don't say, Happy Yom Kippur or Mary Yom Kippur, because that's not the way the day is celebrated. It was the day to afflict the soul because of sin. It was mourning for sin, and this is the basis of fasting in the Old Testament. What a tremendous picture we have here in the great day of atonement. Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? 
Hallelujah! What a Savior lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah! What a Savior!